The following program is brought to you by TasteBud Entertainment. Welcome to two hours of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. We're putting more zing in your spring. Good morning, food lovers. You've tuned in to the best culinary conversation on the radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio this morning, every Sunday morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, based in Southern California, but heard worldwide on iTunes and at chefjamie.com. We are delivering the most delicious conversation. I welcome you to my kitchen. This is your culinary playground. So whether you love to cook or love to eat, stay tuned. We have a delicious show planned and a very full plate. Good morning to you, Lana. Good morning, Jamie. We hope that you'll check out chefjamie.com for the recipe of the week, chef's tips, videos, and more. And we have a food photo contest going on. You could win a $50 gift card to Bristol Farms. And we'll be announcing the winners at our live broadcast, which we hope you'll come and taste and learn and join us. Three winners. Yes, Three $50 gift cards mm-hmm. given away to those who will share their tra- travel food photos. So if you have traveled and have memorable food experiences, which we know if you're a diehard foodie, you have that photo from Italy piled of clams, briny from the sea, and a simple, beautiful olive oil, parsley, garlic-infused laden sauce we want to see it. All you need to do is upload your photos to an email and send them to live, L-I-V-E, at chefjamie.com. The email address again, live at chefjamie.com. And do join us for breakfast and a morning full of activities where you can come taste and learn May 6th, Sunday at Bristol Farms in Manhattan Beach. Let me tell you what's on your plate this morning as we're heating it up in your radio. Coming up in just a moment, pastry chef and pastry guru, Abby Dodge, is going to join us. We're going to give you a tutorial step-by-step on how to make the ultimate angel food cake and share some spring recipes that you can make from Abby's book in four ingredients or less. Also coming up later this hour, we're going to share stories and recipes from the Book Club cookbook. If you savor good food and good books, it's a novel thought to have your book club share recipes, and it's a wonderful cookbook. We'll share it, so stay tuned. Coming up at 9 o'clock, we will announce the winner of our 50s recipe contest. If you submitted a recipe from the decade of hamburgers and diners and great casseroles, we hope you'll join us because we are announcing the winner of the Million Dollar Quartet opening night ticket giveaway. So stay tuned at 9 a.m. for that information. And you'll learn how to make brown butter, bernoisette. Oh, it adds just beautiful, gorgeous hazelnut tones to just about any dish. So please stay tuned for my technique coming up at 9. Next hour, career coach Maggie Mistel joins us so that you can better use social media to improve upon your job search or soul search or career search. But first... Have you ever wanted to make that beautiful, snowy, white, gorgeous angel food cake? It's fat-free, so it's perfect for those watching their skinny figure. And who better to share the tips and tricks of sweets than Abby Dodge? She is baking 
the world better one dish at a time. And her recent cookbook called Desserts for Today, Flavorful Desserts with Just Four Ingredients is one of our favorites. Pastry chef Abby Dodge joins us live. Good morning, Abby. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning, Lana. Good morning, Abby. How are you two? Oh, we're great. Thank you. And we received on Twitter early this morning from Tokyo comments about the great Abby Dodge and all (laughs) your great secrets that you share with the world. That is so terrific. Isn't that cool? I love that that we're heard around the world and that there are fabulous foodies around the world. And you bake together with those that love to bake in their own kitchens on your website at abbydodge.com. And Lana and I were very delighted. And you're a, a very constant correspondent to us here on the show. And we love that. We're always learning baking tips from you. We were very excited to see all of the buzz about Angel Food Cake because there's something beautiful about the sweet golden brown crust and the soft, spongy, snowy white interior. It's, it's exactly right. And I, I think that it is, it's exactly that texture, um, that, it, that melting in your mouth, you know, not cotton candy, not super sweet, but just a delicate balance between a cake flavor that's slightly sweetened and, and flavored with something like orange or lemon, or we'll, we can even talk about all of those options. Um, I, I just think that not only is an angel food cake pretty enough to wear as an Easter bonnet, um, hmm. it's also uh, it's delicious to serve. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, you know, if there are leftovers, I'm telling you right now, toast them up, drizzle it with a little maple syrup, and call it breakfast. It's heaven. Oh, now you're talking. You know, I don't think I've ever paired maple syrup and angel food cake. I have been known to throw a slice of angel food cake on the barbecue, Abby. Nice. Yeah, so that caramelization that you're talking about, toasting it. And I have childhood memories of pound cake in a saute pan that Lana, my mom, as everyone knows, would always toast. And mom, that was the beauty of caramelization before I knew it was called caramelization, Mm -hmm. right? All the butter and sugar that caramelized and gave you that toasty exterior can be done the same with angel food cake. Mm -hmm. Abby says toast it for breakfast, Mm -hmm. bring it on. I say grill it for dessert. But take us through, Abby, what we need to know to make a great angel food cake uh yeah let's do it let's start um jamie and lana let's start with an angel food cake pan um now mine i i i got mine from my mom so it's an aluminum pan it's about 10 inches round and it's four inches high and it's a tube pan it's square bottomed um, and straight-sided, not, not a bundt pan, although people on Bake Together have made this angel food cake in a bundt pan. Um, but the one I use has little tiny feet on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that My, mine, too. Yep, yes. um, mm-hmm. because at the end of baking, you, you need to, in, once it's baked, you actually need to cool it upside down. Mm-hmm. So if yours doesn't have little feet, you need to make sure before you start you know, getting going with the cooking, you need to make sure that you, you know, jerry-rig, uh, you know, some soup cans or some preserve jars so that you can turn this thing upside down immediately. If you uh, are using that ring-shaped tube pan, Abby, you could turn it over on a wine bottle. Exactly. I've done that that's, as well. That's always a good way. So any wine bottle will work to turn your tube pan over on. Exactly. That's I do a- like people to try that out in advance, you know, before you actually have the cake in hand. 
just to make sure it's going to be stable enough. Mm-hmm. That's a good dry run and a very good use of a wine bottle. I love that. That's easily accessible. Yes. Grab it, you know, from your wine fridge or your quasi-cellar. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so now let's go on to um, probably the, the, well, certainly the biggest ingredient in an angel food cake, egg whites. Now, some people, like me, have egg whites in the freezer or in the fridge, you know, from, you know, leftover from a yolk-based ice cream or a, a, a curd that I've made or a custard or something like that. Uh, but for those of you who don't have that, uh, the most important thing about this is to separate these egg whites from their yolk and not break the yolk. Now, the best, I think the easiest way to do this until you get super good at this, and I mean super good and confident, is to break, do it one at a time. Break an egg using in it, into a small ramekin and scoop out, you know, Alternate that yolk back and forth so that you're being very careful and it's just the white that's dropping into a clean ramekin. And Abby, if you are concerned about the hand movement of back and forth, and by the way, the freshest eggs will separate more difficultly because the white tends to cling to the yolk and that's a good sign of knowing the age of your eggs. But you can always set a small handheld mesh strainer over a glass and you can actually break the egg in and the white will fall into the glass through the strainer and the yolk will remain intact. So if you're looking for a method to use an actual utensil, the mesh strainer will work. I believe every great cook can master the separation by hand of yolks and whites. Yes, and I love that tip, Jamie. That's just terrific. And um, you brought up a good point about using fresh eggs. They'll be more challenging to separate. But they'll uh, taste better. They'll make more beautiful whipped whites, right? Exactly. And yeah. what I always suggest is um, people um, separate uh, the yolks, the, the yolks from the whites when the eggs are cold. Most that definitely. will help yes. make it, that will make it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. And then let those whites, once you've separated them all and the whites are in your nice clean bowl, um, let that, the whites come to room temperature for the best volume. That way your cake will rise up to what I call a voluptuous level um, in the baked cake. Mm. I love a voluptuous cake. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. totally think this cake is, it really fits that description. It's, it's airy and tall and proud mm-hmm. and all sorts of puffy. Uh, but back to the recipe. Um, we were talking, Jamie and Lana, briefly about putting it into uh, the egg whites into a, con- into a clean container. Super important. Mm-hmm. Super important. You want it squeaky clean be- with no traces of fat. Um, the way I do it, I use a stand mixer, a stainless steel bowl, and a stainless steel whip, and I rinse out my bowl and, and whisk with a little bit of vinegar. This will peel away. Any, any little remaining fat that can, you know, preclude these whites from whipping up to their voluptuous best, um, and then just rinse out the bowl and the beater, 
clean them with a clean towel. Don't use the one that you just dried the bacon pan with. <laughs> and uh, and then you're ready to start, you know, to put your egg whites in. And you're Abby, still- yes, ma'am. Pause there because okay. when we come back, we're going to beat those whites until foamy. Add cream and tartar to stabilize, create stiff peaks, and then we're going to produce a beautiful angel food cake. There is more baking 101 with pastry chef Abby Dodge at abbydodge.com. You, me, Chef Jamie and Lana, of course. We're at chefjamie.com serving up seconds, and there's more delicious conversation after this, so don't touch your dial. Wake up and dig in. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio KFWB News Talk 980. She is a seven-time cookbook author and studied at La Varenne. She is pastry guru Abby Dodge, our baking correspondent, and she's live with us. Abby, if you would, um, wrap up and take us through the rest of the angel food cake so that we can talk, too, about some four-ingredient desserts for spring. Absolutely. I think we've actually gone through the most specific part of the cake anyway. So the process is simply a matter of sifting cake flour, confectioner sugar, and table salt together three times. Um, I'm holding up my fingers three yes. times. <laughs> um, and then you're going to start to beat your whites on medium until they're foamy. Add a little cream of tartar, and that will help stabilize those whites once that you've beaten them up. And then you, you start beating and start slowly, gradually adding the super fine sugar uh, because that dissolves more easily and more quickly than regular granulated sugar. Abby, yes, I'm ma'am. sorry to interrupt you, but you know, we have a trick for making super fine sugar. If you find you have all the ingredients and the urge to make an angel food cake today, but your sugar is traditional granulated, I throw the cup or more into the food processor and blend until it's somewhat powdery, I think simulating the super fine, and then I remeasure again. Do you approve of that process? I absolutely approve of that process. Homemade super fine sugar. Exactly, and I've been surprised Voila. Know, in traveling around that a lot of stores are no longer carrying super fine. It's but become harder to find. Yeah, and so, but as you say, it's easy to make at home with what your regular ground uh, granulated sugar is. Good. Thank you. Okay, keep going. Okay, so then um, we're going to beat these whites not until they become super stiff, okay? What we're looking for is something, uh, a batter that's thick and shiny, and the peaks, when you lift up the the beater and turn the beater over, the top peak will gently flop over, okay? Because this will leave some room for these whites to expand once they go into the oven, right? Mm, Nice. Not super, not super stiff. We don't want them pointing straight up. We want them flopping over gently. And then we're going to add in our flavoring ingredients and then gently fold in that flour mixture that we've sifted three times and, you know, guide it into the pan and then off it into, into the oven it goes. I love that on abbydodge.com where you bake together. And by the way, they're a very inclusive group of very happy bakers. So you should become a part of this baking club uh, with Abby. But you mentioned how you can add citrus zest or finely chopped herbs or lemon basil. It could become a coffee angel food cake, an almond, a cocoa. You could add texture with nuts. You could prepare a raspberry sauce simply from a container of raspberries cooked down with some sugar and a squeeze of lemon juice and have a beautiful 
beautiful sauce or a drizzle at abbydodge.com there is a bittersweet salty boozy as abby calls it caramel sauce oh i love that. oh that looks fabulous over the top good <laughs> and that would just take this gorgeous tangerine angel food cake to the next level you can find the actual ingredient by ingredient tutorial with photos and more on the bake together portion from the mm-hmm. homepage of abbydodge.com and we do hope that your angel food cake turns out beautifully mm, now abby my mother used to make a chiffon cake oh which i understand that the uh, first recipe did not appear until the 1940s oh, it was developed in the 20s amazing yes and, isn't uh, it wonderful oh it was marvelous the marvelous. history the history of these cakes the angel food mm-hmm. the chiffon pound cake have come so far mm-hmm. and we've added new flavors and ingredients and mm-hmm. and imparted the garden mm-hmm. but it is still the beauty of the crumb mm-hmm. that lasts with you it was just perfect just my fabulous. mother used a lot of almond extract ah. mm-hmm. abby do you use almond extract i love uh, well oh. i love the flavor of mm-hmm. almond i i use extract sparingly because I think it's very strong. Mm. Um, so as opposed to vanilla extract where I would maybe add a tablespoon, I st- always start with a quarter teaspoon, um, no matter really what I'm making, mm-hmm. and I taste because once it's the product, whether it's a cookie or an angel food cake is baked up, it in- the flavor will intensify. So it's a great I love tip. It. I use it a lot, but I do use it sparingly, Lana. Yeah, almond extract, you need a smidgen. But mom, if um, grandma used it, that's why you use oh, it. Oh, I love the flavor profile. That's There's a no genetic doubt. flavor profile, <laughs> Abby. Don't you think it's also reminiscent, right? I, yes. I can, right now, I can smell it in my uh, own mom. Yes. yes. And I love that you hold up three fingers. That's what a good online baking teacher does, even on the radio. If you want to indulge in something sweet tonight, Abby has a collection of four-ingredient desserts that I love. And Lana will tell you that this book always sits on my desk because it's a go-to for me. So we marked a few, Abby, with about a minute or so left here. Toasted pistachio crisps could be made with any nut, right? Four ingredients give you a home-baked cookie in 13 to 15 minutes. Exactly. Time enough. Your, your batter is made while your oven is preheating. I love that. And then, So easy and so delicious. Isn't that a fabulous mm-hmm. idea and a great mm-hmm. recipe? What if we have a container of raspberries or blueberries or the strawberries are very sweet here? I'm going to make you jealous on the West Coast, Abby. Oh, Our I farmer's know. markets are bountiful right now, but crushed raspberry mascarpone whip in a big balloon wine glass it's Mm. just what i was going to suggest jamie no kidding (laughs) it is just the perfect it's a combination of raspberries or you can switch in those beautiful strawberries yes i'm jealous um so so (laughs) raspberries or berries little granulated sugar mascarpone cream whipped up with some heavy cream layered as a parfait Love it. it. It's to die for. And the quintessential spring. And then leave us with the idea of making your banana caramel swirl frozen yogurt. I was talking with a girlfriend about this recipe. She and I, and I know your family too, because we dished a couple of days ago before <laughs> this conversation. And Lana loves it as well. We're all addicted to tart frozen yogurt. And you could recreate it at home using your recipe here, you say, by buying the Greek yogurt, traditional yogurt in the dairy section, which tends to be a bit tart and making your own froyo. Exactly. And it's just as easy as having some nice ripe bananas, some caramel topping you can mm. make it yourself or store-bought, and a little brown sugar and the Greek-style yogurt. And you whiz all of that up 
and then spin it around in an ice cream maker, and you are good to go. Oh, I am making that today. Isn't that brilliant? That sounds fabulous. Abby, you always satisfy our cravings. We love having you on, and we can't wait to have you again. Again, abbydodge.com so that you can bake together. She is baking the world a better place one recipe at a time. And you've uh, offered us a sweet Sunday for that, as always, Abby. We thank you. Well, I thank you. Love talking to you, Gail. Thank you. And you too. Happy spring to you. Yes. As the delicious conversation continues, do you have a book club? Well, you need to know about the book club cookbook when we come back. Recipes for avid readers. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Don't go away. Satisfying your cravings this morning. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana. Always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, C-H-E-F-J-A-M-I-E.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen. Here's a novel thought. If you savor good food and good books, there is a cookbook specifically for you. Recipes inspired by popular novels, all collaborated from a book club. The book club cookbook is recipes and food for thought from your book club's favorite books and authors across the country. Vicki Krupp, the author. USA Today says that if you're in a book club, you'll savor the stories. And we're delighted that Vicki is joining us along with her co-author, Judy Gelman. They've created this book club cookbook that is all the hit. Vicki, are you there? Good morning. I'm here. Good morning. We're glad to have you. Good morning. Thank you. Congratulations. It's really a wonderful concept for avid readers and or avid cooks. And we wonder how you decided what books should be included. Well, um, yes. When Judy and I started um, our research, um, we really felt like we wanted to create a a reference book for book clubs to to look up great um, titles. So we didn't want to just create a cookbook, but we also wanted to um, gather a collection of some of the best titles for book clubs. So the way we chose the titles was really by interviewing book clubs across the country. Hmm. Um, we interviewed, uh, we surveyed and interviewed hundreds of book clubs. And I have to say, we didn't ask them specifically, are you reading books or, or what book would you recommend that has a good recipe connected to it? Instead, we asked them, what books have you read that provoked the best discussions? Um, and so we, we collected Great question. 100 titles from those answers, and then from there we, uh, we paired recipes with them. And there are recipes that tie into the theme or the situations or where the book is based, but not specifically food-oriented novels. These are novels that have a, a storyline that is maybe involved with food or a place or a demographic that has a food association. And that's what I liked about it so much is that many of the recipes are inspired by some of the best-selling books of our time, but that have become a staple across the country. And many of them that have become movies that we know and love, like The Help. Yes, um, absolutely. And um we, uh, as I said, we, we didn't start from the point of, of what's the best culinary-themed book that you've read. Um, we, but we did look, once we had the titles chosen, we started looking for, well, what's a pivotal scene in the book that a food might um, come out of? Um, an example of that was a book called Cane River um, by Lolita Tademi. Um, and I should say here that we we started right away asking book clubs and then finally asking authors to tell us 
the foods that they would pair with their books because we quickly realized that was the most interesting way to get these these foods rather than trying to figure it out ourselves. Um, and so a great example of that is Cane River. Lolita Tademi wrote this um, memoir. It's, it's a fictional um, history of her, her family, um, which uh, she descended from slaves. And the very first scene in that book took place in a plantation cookhouse, and there were slaves cooking a peach cobbler. Um, and when we asked Lolita Tademi to tell us about the peach cobbler, she said, actually, that was there, there's a recipe that descended in my family and was passed down from the women in my family. Um, and my sister can tell you the recipe, and so that's the recipe we, we included in the book. So we found that we, we, we were getting these fabulous stories um, from both authors and from book clubs, um, but particularly from the authors, about why they chose to include certain foods in their books. Hmm. Um, and so there were a lot of surprises along the way. It was wonderful. Oh, well, I think sometimes the pairings are obvious. Yes. And, and sometimes not. No, and I think it's a fascinating concept, too, because when you gather with friends and you plan a book club or let's say you go to different homes each time, there is one thing that brings you all together, and that's the fact that you've all read the book and have a relationship with the prose. But at the same time, gathering friends and entertaining has so much to do in our world with food. So if everyone brought a dish or if the dessert that you were serving had a correlation to the book, what a rich book club experience it might be. I love reading through, uh, and I mentioned The Help because it's just one of my favorite movies. I love reading through the feature that you have on The Help, which was written by Catherine Stockett. And of course, the story of Abilene and um, the domestic. She was a, a slave, a domestic at the time when she raised everyone else's children. But all of those women were connected with food. And Catherine Stockett, the author, actually supplied the recipe for both uh, Dimitri's chocolate pie and the caramel cake with the icing in your yes. cookbook. And yes, Catherine Stockett actually was one of our very first contributors actually to our website where we, um, we list, uh, we include author recipes as well. Um, and she grew up um, with uh, an African-American maid and Dimitri. So that was her her own uh, family recipe from her maid, Dimitri's chocolate pie, and as we all know how the chocolate pie worked its way into her book, yes. um, and as well as um, the caramel cake. We'll never so forget very- that. Vicky, we'll never forget that. (laughs) Exactly. That is a a most memorable scene. Lana, I don't think, yes, go ahead. Uh, It was wonderful at our Oscar party. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. In fact, that was one of the featured desserts, Vicky, Mm -hmm. at our Oscar party, because we we tie everything (laughs) into food, movies and books. Uh Uh, Lana, you have fond memories, I know, of Lauren Weisberger's The Devil Wears Prada. Mm. We're a very creative family, so we blend uh, lifestyle with food and fashion, which Lana comes from that business as well, Vicki. And the idea of the sun-dried tomato and goat cheese pizza being among many of the items that went untouched (laughs) in the cafeteria scene in Mm -hmm. The Devil Wears Prada really reminds me of some of my favorite parts of the book. Yes. Well, that was a recipe we chose ourselves. That's one of my favorite recipes in our book, by the way. It's absolutely delicious. And as Lana, I think, said a minute ago, um, there are some, some... recipes that sort of naturally emerge from the book, like in the hours, um, crab, that crab thing is mentioned throughout that book. Um, And so we had a book club that contributed a crab casserole, 
And obviously honey in The Secret Life of Bees is a key ingredient, and so we included a honey cake that actually was contributed by Sue Monk Kidd, the author. Mm. So some are obvious, um, and others are unique and creative. And I just want to give you one example of a really creative um, food that a book club told us about. Um, it, It connects to the book The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, and lots of the book clubs we spoke to made um, Swedish smorgasbord-type food, Swedish meatballs. The recipes we ended up including were Swedish meatballs and glog, which is a... Mold wine, wine, right? Yes. Which um, we have the recipe. Yes, and in yes. fact, we're sharing it. Yes. And Vicki, allow me to interrupt Thank you a moment. Yes. If anyone would like our loyal food listeners and avid book lovers alike, if you would like the recipes excerpted that Vicki has shared from the book club cookbook, and if you've just tuned in, you're late, but forgiven. Because every Sunday morning, you'll find us in your radio dishing on the best dishes, food trends, along with food artisans, cookbook authors, Food Network stars, and more. So don't miss it. You can always email us, though, for recipes that you don't find at chefjamie.com, including recipes excerpted from the book club cookbook. You write to live, L-I-V-E, at chefjamie.com. Go ahead, Vicki. Great. Well, um, so the recipes, as I said, the two we included were the Swedish meatballs and the glog. But we also, at the end of each chapter, we have little sections called more food for, well, actually we've called them novel thoughts this time around. Um, No, let me just get it right. More food for thought, excuse me. More food for thought. Um, And these sections, we, we just had so many food ideas from book clubs that we thought were fabulous that we didn't have have space to include all their recipes but we wanted to give some menu ideas at the end of each chapter and this group for the girl with the dragon tattoo uh, made an all purple meal um oh, and they made purple potatoes they boiled mm-hmm. red cabbage and then they used the cabbage water to stain soba noodles purple and when we asked them what that had to do with the book um the the book club member explained the ingredients, and I'm quoting her, the ingredients like noodles and vegetables were simple, but turning everything purple gave the meal an unusual theme. To the world, Lisbeth appeared to be a simple person, but you learn how unique she is underneath. The meal was a representation of how not to judge things superficially. So she gave a very um, sort of a metaphoric, um, that group did a metaphoric interpretation of, uh, of the book and to create their menu. Some very clever ideas emerged yes. from your book clubs and your books. Uh, in The Secret Life of Bees, uh, one of them was uh, drinking Coke with a peanut in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And that was in the book. I, I remember that, in fact. And mm-hmm. so that could be the theme of a beverage for your mm-hmm. book club idea. I love, uh, as well, in the book, Vicki, where um, in My Sister's Keeper, mm-hmm. the um, firehouse marinara sauce... Yeah. Um, which the time spent with the firemen and the fire station definitely brings about the novel thought of honoring them as well. Uh, good friends, good books, delicious home-cooked food all coming together, proving um, that books and delicious recipes can bring us all together. And we congratulate you. It's really a wonderful concept, Vicki. And for anyone with a book club, this is an essential cookbook. But give us, if you would, um, with just 30 seconds or so left here, some tips on and advice, really, on how to start a successful book club, if you would? Well, we've always found that the most successful book clubs um, agree on their expectations up at the front, at, at the start. So the problems with book clubs come that in, in the sense that some people in the group want to uh, make it a social evening, and 
with wine, which is fine, and a little bit of discussion, and others want more serious focus on the book. So it's nice to start out with your um, your group talking about your expectations, how you're going to select your books, how often you're going to meet, um, how food is going to be involved, if at all. And um, I would say that's that's the most important thing mm. to um, to agree at the start. Gather some friends. Mm, your book is a wonderful celebration of the written word. It is Thanks. truly. Thank you. And and please gather friends that are great cooks because that will make your book club so much more delicious, right? Or you it can is... always go to restaurants. <laughs> that that's to true. They they go to thematic restaurants. So oh, I love that. That's fun, too. Revised and updated. The Book Club Cookbook is available. Judy Gelman and Vicki Levy-Krupp, creators of thebookclubcookbook.com, where you'll find recipes as well. Our best to you this spring, Vicki. Thanks so much for sharing your passion. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Considering that there uh, is a small ocean of reasonably priced, some inexpensive wines out there, you need to know what to buy, right? When we come back, it's our morning tasting. Stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Don't go away. We're improving your life one meal at a time. It's really how you put the dish together that sets it apart. And you're welcome to weigh in, share your passion. Phone lines are open, 888-539-2980. Toll free, that will get you to us, 888-539-2980. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana. I believe that food is life, so create and savor yours. We have the best thinkers on this show. Stay tuned, coming up next hour, we're in search of food with Chef Scott Pampu, and we're bettering your career life with CNN's favorite career coach, Maggie Mistel, with recipes strewn all throughout as well. I left off, Lana, mentioning last segment, just before we went to break, and I already have three Facebook mentions too, that there is a sea of inexpensive or very, really fabulously valued wines out there. And I've always said you cannot choose by the pretty picture. So how do you know what to buy? As a certified sommelier, and I'm proud to have trained under master sommelier Michael Jordan, which, by the way, we need to give a shout out to. I'm still slightly full from the Mm. meal last night. Fabulous food. Oh, what a meal at the ranch in Anaheim. Two months old, 200 plus seats. Chef Michael Rossi heard on this show, truly delectable dishes with a saloon, country music, and the two-step next door. It was so much fun. It is a casual, fine dining restaurant. It is. They've really created a beautiful balance. You're right. And then to go to the saloon next door for a little two-step. It was so great. We had a great Great time with friends. Great fun evening. And really incredible food. But with that said, as a certified sommelier, I pride myself on the fact that I believe in sharing my knowledge about wine. No matter what you hear or what you learn, you should drink what you like. And when it comes to spring, we're starting to get a little lighter, coming out of winter, big, bold, you know, fruit-forward cabs, and maybe the oaky, buttery Chardonnays that you've been enjoying need to lighten up just a bit as the weather warms up. There is always an ocean of inexpensive wine out there, but you have to search high and low to find the value wines that taste good, the ones you'd actually serve to your friends and family. And there are four South American gems that are offered at Bristol Farms right now in what they call the two for 10 tango. And I'm asked very often about the wine values at Bristol Farms, gourmet supermarket with uh, wine for $5. Really? How good could it be? Right. And we all know the 
the stories and the New York Times cover article many years back about two buck chuck. Are you really drinking the wine for $1.99? Well, I love a beautiful bottle of William Selim. We drank 2007 Pinot Noir last night. It's a treat. And I love a Scherer Zinfandel. And I love the wines that run in the $20 and $30 value. And for uh, a really extraordinary vertical, if you're drinking Screaming Eagle, uh, I mean, more power to you at 100 plus dollars a bottle. But at five bucks a bottle, how good is it? It's pretty good, I have to say. So we thought we would on air share with you four wine finds from Bristol Farms available now. These are some of them a treat. Um, I'm calling them the Fab Four. They should sell for at least triple what they're selling for. Uh, The promotion will continue as long as they can keep them in the stores. And I'm going to say that it's called House Wine. So if you need a house wine for summer, Lana, these are what I would choose from. Oh, they're awfully good wines. So buy a case Mm -hmm. when you find one you like. First buy, buy the bottle and then store your case so that Mm -hmm. you know you have a wine that pairs well with food throughout the summer long and that's your house wine. We'll start um, with the lightest and this is a Kunza Sauvignon Blanc. Now you have to like the somewhat Australian uh, approach that most people associate stainless steel with. The winemaking approach that has a lot of stainless steel. This is actually a Chilean import. It's called Kunza, K-U-N. It's a Sauvignon Blanc. It's got a lot of beautiful honey on the nose, which I really love, um, and a a creamy texture. But I think it's an excellent match to seafood. And I will say, it's it's nice and light. Oh, the nose is beautiful. The nose is beautiful. Mm. As you stick your nose into the glass. Mm Mm-hmm. And then take a taste. It's very clean and high acidity. So... I'm thinking even you need a rich, creamy cheese to go with it. So top your salad with goat cheese if you're opening a bottle of the Kunza. A Sauvignon Blanc from Chile tastes far more than $5. Oh, and lovely just to to sip away and, and enjoy. I agree. Now, this of the four, this next wine is my favorite. I think it's the hit. And it's called um, Mission. And it's a Chardonnay. And it's produced by a Burgundian producer. They make Chablis. And I think it's a gem. It will knock your socks off this Chardonnay. It has a little bit of oak on it, but it has nice minerality and a beautiful finish. It's Mission Chardonnay. And um, it too is Chilean. And I think it tastes like a $20 bottle. And I would serve it with scallops in a second. Oh, this is my favorite of all the wines. Isn't that nice? I agree. Then there are two reds that I'm highlighting. Um, Tora Vieja is the name. They're both Argentinian. Tora Vieja. They make a Malbec and a Bonarda. The Malbec is nice, but if you were to choose of the two reds, I would go with the Bonarda. Bonarda is a transplant from Italy's Piedmonte or Piedmont region. The grape um, began in uh, Italy and was taken to Argentina, uh, Argentina rather. It's Argentinian. And the transplant Bonarda, the grape, you haven't seen very often, but it's got lots of plum notes to it, lots of smoky flavor. I think it's a nice full-bodied red, an incredible value, and great for barbecue. And again, this is called the Tora Vieja Bonarda. Go into any Bristol Farm store Mm. and you will find these bottles, all of them uh, on the special promotion called Two for Ten Tango, $5 bottles that taste like so much more. A wonderful finish. You like that? 
tremendous. Oh, I'm so glad. Mm-hmm. That, it's, a, it's a pretty good find, mm-hmm. really. And so we hope that you'll uh, check it out and make these your house wines this summer. It's hard to believe they're $5 a bottle. I, I agree. So we'll just keep drinking. Just a little Shh, taste in the morning. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anybody. Um, but do tell all of your friends to turn on their radio if they haven't yet and tune in. Coming up in just a few minutes at the beginning of next hour, we will announce the winner of our 50s recipe contest. If you are one of the hundreds that submitted your recipe for a 50s recipe contest, you might be the winner of opening night tickets to Million Dollar Quartet at Segerstrom Hall in Orange County. So stay tuned. Also, I hope you'll join me next Sunday at 3 p.m., but all throughout the afternoon, you'll find KFWB radio hosts at the LA Times Festival of Books being held at USC this year. I will be at the LA Times Festival of Books live in your radio and live at the event at 3 p.m. with Bob McCormick next Sunday, April 22nd. So I'll meet you there. And as long as you're marking your calendars, don't forget our live broadcast coming up Sunday, May 6th, where you can come join us for breakfast, taste, and learn. It's a whole morning of delicious activities at Bristol Farms in Manhattan Beach, along with the Melissa's Produce Team. We'll be grilling away, touring the store, uh, teaching how to put together the ultimate cheese platter and more. So please do join us. We hope you'll come out. And we hope you'll stay tuned for another hour. Delicious conversation and fabulous food. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. Don't go away. There is more fabulous food right after this. Welcome to the second hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. It is our goal to go way beyond mere eating and drinking. We are on a mission to find the most exciting places and new intelligences and emerging trends to bring you new products and insight into the world of food. And we thank you for tuning in every Sunday morning beginning at 8 a.m. for two hours of delicious conversation. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. The recipe of the week posted there as well, a Parmesan-crusted chicken with arugula, asparagus, and baby heirloom tomato salad, perfect for dinner tonight. Just a thin coating of Dijon. Lana, when we did with all the fresh herbs, really kept that chicken breast moist and then breaded and pan-sautéed over greens, bitey, wild arugula, and a simple Mm, vinaigrette. It was perfect. It's really delicious and light Mm -hmm. and fresh and could be the ultimate weeknight meal, so be sure to check it out at chefjamie.com. Did you submit your best recipe for our 50s recipe contest? We've told you for the last few weeks that we're giving away tickets to see Million Dollar Quartet, the show that made a huge Broadway hit in New York, the 1956 jam session a combination or culmination of the sounds of Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis, the concert and musical that's coming to Segerstrom Hall in Orange County. It begins on April 24th. Well, if you submitted your recipe, you're about to hear if you won. 
it's the decade, the 50s, that was very much referred to as comfort food, mm-hmm. right, Lana? It was when Duncan Hines introduced cake mix mm-hmm. in a box. Well, the food that you would find at diners and at home in the 50s. And yes. Today, it's our comfort food. It is. And uh, Burger King opened that uh, decade selling burgers for 18 <gasps> cents. Isn't that amazing? And the first McDonald's franchise. Yes. And Pam Vegetable Cooking Spray was patented in the 1950s. Mm. And Swanson unveiled the first frozen TV dinner. Yeah, very cool. Let's give our ideas on a TV dinner. Okay, so, and this is a great concept that extends far beyond Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. But the next time you make a, a big, beautiful meal and you have leftovers, what do those leftovers become? They become a TV dinner. Maybe you're you're making a dedicated meal to make a homemade TV dinner. Most definitely, which I do. I buy a multi-compartment aluminum pan. Right, the small ones, yes, right? Yes, and then I make a meatloaf, some mashed potatoes and gravy, some steamed peas, and a little apple cobbler, and then fill each of the compartments of the dish. Right, and it's a TV dinner that is essentially homemade and it's so much better than what you might find frozen. And I've always mentioned for years at Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, right? Take a compartmentalized plastic heavy duty plate or layer two, put some turkey, some gravy, some stuffing, some mashed potatoes, some sweet potatoes, wrap it with plastic wrap, preferably slide it into a Ziploc bag. So it's really airtight and then throw it in the freezer. The next time you're wondering what to have for dinner, you will not open a box, but better yet open your own homemade TV dinner, reheat it and you, have the memories of a great meal Mm -hmm. that are completely homemade it's uh, a tv dinner but one that actually tastes good yes it is exactly (laughs) by the way the baked alaska which was created at delmonico's restaurant in new york considered true elegance although it was very easy Mm -hmm. was created in the 50s as well we received lots of wonderful submissions wonderful wonderful recipes stories from people from Mm. chefs even that have posted recipes inspired by the 50s on their website using malt balls and the malt flavor that was so prominent in the 1950s. Um, Kellogg's Frosted Flakes were introduced in the 50s. Someone Mm -hmm. sent us a wonderful recipe using Frosted Flakes to make uh, like a crispy bar, Mm -hmm. but using a different cereal. And we loved all of your submissions and we thank you for all of them. Uh, By the way, we want to mention that the Million Dollar Quartet concert or musical really running at Segerstrom Hall begins on April 24th and it runs through May 6th and do, oh do not miss it yeah the don't it's supposed to be reviews. fabulous mm. can't wait to go million dollar quartet is also being featured at Leatherby's the restaurant next to the uh, Segerstrom Hall where Chef Ross is doing an all million dollar quartet focused menu which is really fun oh what's on his menu he's doing Kobe beef meatballs with thick cut spaghetti I think oh. that's really fun. And for dessert, you're having peanut butter, jelly, and banana sandwiches with a root beer float. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's only $44 yes. per person for three courses. Mm. It's a great value. So make sure you plan for before showtime to go. And a wonderful evening at that beautiful venue. Yes, Across that it is. from South Coast Plaza. It's just a wonderful night. That it is. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, did you win? Well, if this is your story, you did. Dear Jamie and Lana, I have one delicious memory to share for the fabulous 50s recipe contest. I must say, my mother was more at home in her garden than in the kitchen, and I am reading the letter from the winner here. This was one thing that she made that was always a hit. She never passed it down to me, and somehow it was lost years ago. I am a teacher, and one day while in the teacher's lounge about five years ago, another teacher 
came in and joined me for lunch. I asked her what she was doing that evening. She said she was having company and making her aunt's fabulous spare ribs. I asked what was in them. I couldn't believe my ears as she went down the list. It was the exact recipe my mother had made so many years ago. I can still see slices of lemon on the ribs in the 9 by 13 glass Pyrex dish. They smelled so good while baking. These are Janie Von Segern's barbecue spare ribs. And Janie, congratulations to you. You are the winner of our Million Dollar Quartet opening night ticket contest giveaway. We thank you for sharing your pork rib recipe. Oh, how exciting. What a fabulous uh, combination. Pork Mm. ribs, lemon, chili powder, ketchup, water, Worcestershire, Mm -hmm. Tabasco. Your mother was ahead of her time, Janie. She really was. (laughs) And we hope that you and your husband, Albert, both longtime fans and followers of our show, and we thank you for your loyal listenership. Enjoy opening night to Million Dollar Quartet. We will be in touch so that you can enjoy a night at the theater. And thank you to everyone else that submitted these fabulous recipes. We wish we could have had a top 10. Pretty terrific stuff. Yes. So please do not continue, do continue participating in all of our contest. There's a contest currently running at chefjamie.com. It's a food photo contest and we hope that you'll it's so easy. Send us a photo from your latest food travels or one that you remember. A memorable Italian experience Mm -hmm. like we had in the Med last year makes for glorious food photos you want to share. What did you have for breakfast lunch or dinner on your last trip? Do you want to know what I had? I could tell you what I had the first day in Italy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Every day. Pizza, pizza, and more pizza. Uh, But all you do is email live, L-I-V-E, at chefjamie.com. That's the email address. You'll find it at chefjamie.com in our rotating feature, Look for the Food Photo Contest. You'll also find the recipe of the week, uh, something sweet. The ultimate sour lemon bars are posted there. And Mm. you can cook with Lana. I love your recipe this week because... Spring frittata. Yes. I think a frittata allows you to clean out your produce drawer. You know, the half of this Mm. and the one zucchini and the four spears of asparagus that Mm -hmm. are left. And then all the little knobs of cheese, too. It's like a five cheese, every vegetable spring frittata when I make it. And the one that that, uh, is posted is done with mushrooms and tarragon. Mm, Nice. And some some soft goat cheese in it. Love it. It's just lovely. If you've not made a frittata Mm -hmm. before, it's really like an open-faced omelet. And Mm -hmm. it starts in a pan and finishes in the oven. And the only thing that might make your spring frittata better, Lana, than the recipe as it is right now is to start by browning the butter. Mm -hmm. Every week here on the radio, you will hear a technique. I'm hoping to make you a better cook in your own kitchen. You'll find the technique at chefjamie.com as well. And this week's technique or tip is all about how to make brown butter. Brown butter is one of those magical secret ingredients that enhances the flavor of anything. It has a really rich, nutty taste. It's super easy to make, and it's also called bernoisette. You've heard the French word for brown butter, beurre noisette, associated with the aroma of hazelnuts. And all you do is start melting butter over medium heat in preferably a light-colored pan so that you can keep track of the color as it browns. If you use a dark non-stick pan, it's harder to determine when the butter is brown. But as the butter melts, it begins to foam, and it progresses from yellow to tan to toasty brown. 
And once you smell the nutty aroma, you take the pan off the heat and you transfer it to cool. And the milk solids that cook actually brown and some of the water evaporates. And you'll see that the sediment, almost like from a bottle of wine, will fall to the bottom. You can always strain it through a strainer or cheesecloth. I happen to like the slightly toasty flavor of mm. the solids. Oh, the flavor changes. It takes on a beautiful oh, aroma. I, I think that it's a one-ingredient genius technique to elevate the flavor of anything. That can be added to so much. Oh, it can. Such so, as my brown butter crispy treats. Yeah, I'll take those right now. Mm-hmm. Those are really yummy. You can brown butter, as Lana said, in just about any recipe, like cookies or cakes or sauces. Well, you've just elevated Rice crispy treats to a whole new level. You've elevated your steamed vegetables you've elevated your fish dish if you love trout almondine you love brown butter that's the first time i tasted brown butter yes with toasted almonds Mm -hmm. again that nutty beautiful flavor try um spooning a little bit over pasta or over scallops or over any fresh fish it makes an excellent spread For your dinner rolls, all you do is take the cooled brown butter and you whip it together with regular butter. We want to know how you use brown butter. Do you make a brown butter tart dough or have you made my brown butter pecan pie? That takes pecan pie to a whole new atmosphere. Jamie, do you use salted butter for this or unsalted butter? Well, you can use both actually. And it's a great question. I choose to use unsalted butter in my cooking, and I believe you should too. I like to regulate the amount of salt in what I eat, so unsalted butter is my standard go-to, with the exception of if I am putting just straight, plain, regular butter on the table for bread with dinner, I look for an artisan butter that is lightly salted, but it is only for spreading. It is not for cooking or baking. Unsalted butter is the best choice for how to make brown butter. You'll find a step-by-step tutorial at chefjamie.com. And while you go to your computer, please stay tuned because when we come back, we're in search of food. We're taking the farm to fork approach to a whole new level. Chef Scott Pampu in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Be right back. Strawberry feels forever. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. He is in search of food. Chef Scott Pompu is the new host of Ovation Network's In Search of Food, the show by the same name. And set your TiVo because the second season premieres beginning tomorrow, Monday, for the next three nights of an extraordinary opportunity to see how food is sourced and eaten and prepared across the country. He joins us live, and we're glad to have you, Chef. Good morning. Hey, good morning, ladies. We're sure you had a a wholesome breakfast this morning, something that was very farm-to-fork approached. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I love your commitment to sustainability. It's something that you have not only uh, commanded in the restaurants and the country club that you lead the kitchen by, but also in your own ways of cooking. And the word farm can mean so many things today, Scott. So define it for us, if you would. Farm, quite simply to me, is, in two words, it's a family initiative. It is a piece of land that has been settled on and occupied by a family of people living there in that home and nurturing and taking care of the land, and the land takes care of them. I think there is um, this definition of farm out there um, that is spelled P-H-A-R-M, and not F-A-R-M. And to me, you know, that leads into a pharmaceutical world. And that is not the world I live in. What I live in is 
a very old, ancient mentality of a farm, and it is done by people who still have this great connection to the land that they uh, that they live on and that uh, sources them. Hmm. I think you have a wonderful perspective. As a chef myself, I'm very proud of the fact that we've gone back to our roots, that the farmer is being highlighted for the beauty of what he can bring from his land to kitchen tables across the country. And I can only imagine it must have been a really incredible opportunity for you to travel across America. You went to three diverse locations. You met the local farmers, the chefs, the food artisans. Tomorrow night, you're going to take us to Boulder, Colorado. And we want to know a sneak peek. Uh, Give us a little insight, if you would, how you prepared lunch for a thousand school children on a budget of a dollar and 15 cents per child. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that was... um... That was a challenge like I had never been given before. You know, it was, you know, once I got over the initial shock of, of what the actual challenge that uh, Chef Ann Cooper gave me, your mind starts working. I mean, as, as a chef, what we are trained to do, what our craft is, is, is to solve problems, is that we are to take whatever is handed to us and using our skills and our talents and our craft and sometimes our art form, turn that into a beautiful plate of food that is healthy and nourishing and represents where you are. And cooking for that many students in that school environment and that institutional thing, you know, that has been built by a food system that we all know doesn't work so well, it's a very daunting task. But I will say, Ann Cooper, if anyone ever gets the opportunity to go meet her, talk to her, listen to her talk, run online, find her, if she doesn't spur you to action, if she doesn't invigorate you to get up out of your chair and do something, there is seriously something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> the, the experience was amazing. The kids were incredible. Um, the one sneak peek I will give you is that I will tell you, and most parents will be amazed by this, but kids love root vegetables. They do. They absolutely love turnips, rutabagas, beets. Don't be afraid to give your kids those things because if you give that to them, they trust you. They believe in you as their parent and what you're feeding them. Give them that, at least give that back to them, and they they will believe you and they will get to like it and they, they will know how to eat properly. Well, and I very much believe in the same mentality that you do. You have to taste it once to know. And root vegetables roasted in the oven, kids or adults alike, know that that beautiful caramelization that comes from the natural sugars and high heat creates Mm -hmm. almost like a a carrot lollipop. So you've got that delicious flavor and now you've drawn these kids in. We can't wait to watch you at KC Junior Middle School in Boulder, Colorado. On Tuesday night, you're taking us to find the best local produce in Virginia. And uh, we'd love to know how to make those healthy meals that you taught the family. Can you uh, outline or describe a couple of the dishes, please? That was a really awesome uh, episode for me. I mean, the fact of the matter is is that I, I go to Swoop, Virginia, and if anybody has ever you know, educated themselves in any way, shape, or form through the uh, the icon that he is now, Michael Pollan, through Omnivore's Dilemma. You know exactly who I'm talking about when right. I say Swoop Virginia. It's, you know, Joel Salatin himself. So going there and doing that was completely an honor and meeting him and seeing his farm in action. But, you know, the, the idea that local food is only special occasion or local food is only when I go out um, completely in my mind is, 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 is uh, falsity. Local food can be every day. I mean, the breakfast I had this morning 
you know, included some local bacon that I got from the farmer's market, some people that I've gotten to know over the years. It's just that simple, local eggs. And that's what I tried to incorporate in that episode with the family of four. Hmm. You know, two kids, one five, one nine, um, parents, both working, busy, hectic schedules. You know, he loves to cook. He's a grill man. So we did a, you know, we did a dinner where I, you know, kind of let him step in and take over the grill. And, you know, we did lunch with the mom and making simple things like sandwiches. But putting that local ingredient into there wherever we can, cheeses, bread, it doesn't always have to be, you know, local food of, you know, a, a locally sourced foie gras and, uh, you know, choke cherries. You know, it can be a great burger and fries. And it can be done locally and it can be done in the middle of a week or, you know, on a Saturday afternoon with your kids in a very simple and yet special sort of way. So, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. It's amazing to see the impact that you can have as you travel with food. On Wednesday night, you're taking us to San Diego, which is very close to home here. And we're going to see a vegan drive through diner, which I'm really excited Mm -hmm. about. For that, you'll have to watch. As far as spearheading the local food movement in our own communities, I believe that it can be done on the block that you live on, in the development that you live in, in the community that surrounds all of us. So if you would give us some ideas on how we can bring the farm to fork approach to our own kitchen table. Well, I think quite simply, there is no magic bullet. There is no, you know, list of 10 things I can do. There are lists out there and there's all this sort of information that's out there. The only thing that I can tell people to do is simply get out there and start doing it. Find one thing that you absolutely love. I always go back to butter. As a chef, we live and die by the butter that we sort. I made a commitment a long time ago never to buy butter that was from anywhere else other than where I live. And I made that a commitment. It is the easiest thing to do. Local butter here in, you know, the upper Midwest where I'm at, it's all over the place. And I tell people all the time, start with the basics, milk, butter, eggs, bread, bacon, chicken. Just make that small initial commitment and get used to it. See how it feels. Because really what this is about for me and when I talk to people and when I teach people is that this is not changing the way you eat. People put so much emphasis on food. Am I eating the right food? Am I eating the wrong food? Is it sourced locally? What's the carbon footprint? All these types of things. Is it GMO? Is it not? Hmm. My feeling is that, you know what, the thing that I'm asking someone to do is change. And when you ask someone to change, that is the most difficult thing, no matter what it is. So you have to ease into this. You have to get comfortable with it. So for me, it's all about start somewhere where you know and you're comfortable with. If it's a head of lettuce from a farmer's market, Buy that head of lettuce and commit to that. Start small, build it. You'll get to know it. You'll get comfortable with it. And then you can start branching out and working with other people. I mean, as you said, it's your community. Wherever you are, it right. can be local. Right. And and it's great advice. It is. It's spectacular advice to start somewhere and commit because the farm to fork approach is going to continue to allow these farmers across the country who give of their land back to all of our tables. And I very much admire what you're doing, Scott. And I'm so glad that this second season of In Search of Food launches tomorrow, Monday night. We look forward to seeing the next three nights. Yes, can't wait. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Mark your calendars. Set your TiVo on Ovation Network. You'll find it at 8 o'clock Eastern Time, 5 o'clock Pacific. You can search it, look it up, find Scott Pampu on the internet as well. Minnesota Valley Country Club is where he's at the helm. There's more delicious conversation in your radio after this. Don't go away. 
We're starting off your Sunday right. We have a taste for life. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana, KFWB News Talk 980, every Sunday morning from 8 to 10 a.m., two hours of delicious conversation. It doesn't just have to be food-focused, though. We're all about making your life better, whether it's one recipe at a time, one suggestion, one tip, one find, one topic at a time. And we believe that food is part of lifestyle, and so therefore you should tune in for technology tips and career advice which is happening right here and right now. I had the wonderful opportunity to meet Maggie Mistel when I was last hosting at Martha Stewart Radio on Sirius and XM, where you have listened for the past six years to Maggie's radio program called Making a Living with Maggie. She's currently looking for a new home, and trust me, someone is snatching her up. She is CNN's favorite career coach, one of the nation's best-known career coaches. Maggie's been on CNN and every national television show and we love that she shares with us hope for greater careers and greater success and we're always glad to have you good morning maggie Good morning, Jamie. With an introduction like that, I mean, I'll call in any week you need me. (laughs) Okay, next Sunday it is. Um, I think we should all do that. You know, when you come into work on Monday, introduce your colleagues to each other that way. It's a a great uh, (laughs) uh, ego boost. Wouldn't that make for a better week? I like that. I think we should definitely we should do it Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning, maybe Thursday morning too. By Friday, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> feeling pretty confident by Friday. That's uh, right. Speaking of confidence, whether uh, anyone listening is in the process of a, a soul search, research, job search, as you call it, or maybe you're happy in your job or and you want to just uh, move up the ranks, or maybe you're at a place where you're just not sure whether you're confident or looking to grow, social technology, social media is really taking careers to a whole new level, Maggie. And I'd like to start there because you say that your chances of being found or finding the right job are increasing as technology gets smarter. Yeah, it's fantastic. I recently participated, you know, we know Monster.com as a job board basically online. But what's interesting is with Twitter, where jobs can be posted and with company sites, you know, the job boards aren't quite as relevant as they used to be. So I went to an innovation day that Monster sponsored here in New York City where I live, and it was exciting to see that, believe it or not, it's called semantic search, and you could learn more about it if you want. Just Google that. Um, But what's amazing is you can actually be found much more easily because technology is not just about keywords. Like right now everybody with their resumes is really concerned about making sure they have the right keywords they can be found through the search systems that are used by companies and recruiters to find candidates. Now what's happening is, you know, when I learned this at, at the Innovation Day with Monster, you know, companies have these websites now with, with thousands upon thousands of resumes stuffed into the system, but they can't get to the right people. They still can't search through those resumes quickly enough. And for recruiters listening, I'm sure they'll echo that sentiment. And that's why we often feel when we submit our resume to a company site, it's a black hole. We never hear back. It's not because the companies don't care. It's because they can't get to the right information. But the good news is this new semantic search is going to make it much easier for companies to find the right candidates. So when you are submitting your resume for different jobs, you'll be found as opposed to it being that black hole. So what are the key words? Is it dependent upon the industry that you're in, or are there some uh, go-to words that are more attractive than others, let's say, for those companies that are looking for new candidates? Well, currently, and actually, like I said, it's changing. I mean, this is technology that Monster has launched, um, and companies are starting to use it. 
Uh, but currently what people have to do, and, there, and there's even people using the white space on their resumes creatively, when they're submitting uh, their resumes, what they're doing is they're looking at the job posting and saying, okay, so what are they looking for? And, and maybe there are some industry keywords that relate to maybe certain software you need to know um, or, or, you know, a certain level of five to ten years' experience. You know, there might be certain key things that they're looking for. And, yes, you want to make sure your resume says those so you can do as much mirroring as possible to what the job description is saying. The challenge is if everybody has that, it still takes right now a pair of human eyes to compare those resumes and say, well, which one really fits what we want? Those intangibles that also come across in a resume. You know, things that are told by the story that your resume tells in terms of how fast your career progression has been um, or in terms of the different types of companies you've worked in and positions you've had that demonstrate you'd be a better fit. I mean, companies, as much as they'd love to just fit square pegs into square holes, for anyone interviewing, you know, what, what companies are saying is they can't find the right employees because skills are, are specific now, and, and they're not just looking to, like I said, put another cog in the wheel. They need really talented people that have oftentimes unique backgrounds, and the current systems weren't matching those things up. The good news is with the new technology, you're able to literally, it's kind of like Apple and your iPhone with Siri, and you can say, what's the weather like in New York? And it answers. You can, companies will be able to say, give me an employee who's got – you know, uh, an overlap of creative and business skills and has worked in the industry for 10 years, and the system will pop up a resume that fits. That currently hasn't been the case, but with this new technology, it's going to make lives a lot easier for recruiters, which means job seekers will also have a lot easier time getting into companies and getting those jobs. Uh, Maggie, that's a wonderful idea, and you use the word mirroring. Yes. That is, is, I think, really the key to tying in with the job you're looking for. Yeah, it's making sure that your skill set matches and that what you represent on your resume, right, by definition of mirroring, is what that actual job search is open to. You know, it's interesting, Maggie and Lana, I think you make a wonderful point about mirroring. We were talking to a friend um, who has a 23-year-old son who's been putting his resume out there, and he said the most frustrating part of it is not the fact that there are, are not jobs available because he can find them, but he can never get the follow-up. He can call and write and plead, but until his application has been processed, no one knows who he is. It's really true, and that's the issue, because basically everyone thought, you know, we, we do think technology solves all our problems, right? So when, when these databases were first created and companies could have you submit your resume online, I mean, that's a relatively new thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's the last maybe five or ten years, but that's actually in the work world relatively new. I mean, before that, you had to submit a piece of paper. Remember those days? Mm -hmm. Right? You and mean in an envelope with a stamp? Exactly. And the beauty of it, and actually this is a great tip for that 23-year-old and anybody who's in that same predicament, and so many are, because like I said, the semantic search is new and it hasn't quite been rolled out in every company yet at all, um, but it'll get there. Um, what you can do is literally go back to the old way and not only submitting your resume through the system, which you should do because that's how you are going to get logged in, right? But, but also print out a hard copy, that's right, on a piece of paper with your cover letter, put it in an envelope, and, and on, before, you, before you send it off, put a little post-it at the top that says, second submission, very interested, wow. right? And then send it off to the HR department, and if you do have a particular contact in HR, I would send it to a person's name if you can. I like if that. Not, even sending that in directly to the HR area will help you get to the top of the pile because, again, these recruiters are working really hard. I've sure. talked to recruiters, and they're just as frustrated that they can't get 
to candidates like your 23-year-old friend. But I will tell you what you're mentioning is how I was raised by Lana, and that is persistence will get you everywhere and anywhere. And oftentimes the rule does work. And I remember my first kitchen job with Octavio Becerra because he said to me on the phone, if I let you come here, will you stop calling me? (laughs) And I remember saying, yep, sure will. And I had a date to come in. And that's really, I think, in in a challenging career world, what you, Maggie, are teaching us. Less than a minute before the break, Maggie. Persistence. Persistence will get you there. Give us the lowdown on what Twitter can do for your career. What you can do, the best thing with Twitter is it can expand who you know. I've found it to be an amazing tool to, to connect with not only other career seekers, but a lot of career experts and recruiters. And you can get specific answers to questions like the ones we're talking about here. There are job hunt chats, which is something that happens every Monday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. There's career chat every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You, know, you can literally get in touch with people like me who can offer lots of great advice, recruiters at companies who you can follow, and you can learn about jobs more quickly and easily and get the advice you need in the moment as well. And it's all free. There's nothing you need to do other than build your profile. These are wonderful resources. We're going to continue with certified life purpose and career coach Maggie Mistel after this. Is LinkedIn working for you, making your life better one day, one interview, one recipe at a time? Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. This is Lifestyle Conversation. Stay tuned. You might just learn something. Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, delivering the information you want to know, where to eat, what to make, and how to make your life better. Chef Jamie Gwen here at ChefJamie.com. Maggie Mistel is with us. She is CNN's nation's best known career coach, as they say. And you'll find her at Maggie Mistel, M-A-G-G-I-E-M-I-S-T-A-L.com. Lots of incredible career advice to make your career grow faster and stronger than ever. Maggie, I just received at exactly the same time before we went to break an invitation to uh, have a new uh, connection on LinkedIn, while at the same time I received a Facebook note with a question to ask you about what you think of LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is everywhere. (laughs) Oh, it is. Yes, it is. Actually, LinkedIn has done a tremendous job of being the place, the place, that recruiters go to to find candidates. So if there's one place you're going to be online for your career, it's got to be LinkedIn. Really? So it's really that powerful? There's up to 4 billion searches per year that are happening on LinkedIn. B, B, as in boy. 4 billion? Billion, yes. It's grown exponentially, and it's international as well. So it's not only for folks in the U.S., but, you know, there's millions and millions of users. And what's amazing is, as I said, recruiters are using it to cull through and find the people that they want to hire. You know, you can actually see that on your profile on the right-hand side. It says, you know, your profile's been viewed. And oftentimes what you can do is you can click on that and see who's looking at you. It's pretty terrific, isn't it? I think it's amazing how quickly your network can grow on LinkedIn. And while I'm on Facebook and Twitter like you are and LinkedIn as well, it's definitely far more career or job focused. It's based on your skills, what you do, and it's sort of a tree of a network of those in your similar industry and maybe outside of too. So I could understand why that would be an extraordinary resource for a job search. Well, it's also for people who, yes, we're on Facebook now and Twitter 
But again, you know, Facebook actually is even bigger than LinkedIn. There's some interesting uh, gurus out there on the social media side for job sites saying that you also want to have a career presence on Facebook now using something like Branch Out, which is actually Facebook's LinkedIn, just like their version of LinkedIn. And, and some people think that Facebook may actually even overtake LinkedIn at some point just because of the sheer size of LinkedIn and how much time people are spending, yes, socially right now on Facebook, but they said when you talk about job hunting, how oftentimes is your next job landed through a referral from your social network? So there's a lot of tie-in there. So I encourage people to not only be on LinkedIn, but check out Branch Out, which is, one of, which is Facebook's basically site as well. Monster has one, too. There's Be Known. There's lots of them. But make sure you have a presence on things like Branch Out because you might be found through Facebook as well for your next opportunity. I I don't know anything about Branch Out. I will be very forthright to say, and I will search it today and make sure that I learn more about it. There are always new social media sites and opportunities popping up that will allow you to better yourself personally and in business as well. I believe uh, Pinterest is growing faster than ever. And while it's more um, social media based on uh, personal likes and, you know, following and so on, there is something everywhere to learn from. And there are ways to better ourselves in so many um, different facets. Maggie, yeah, tell us. A lot of my clients that you're saying, Jamie, you know, we can get overwhelmed, right? Right. It's true. I mean, I was surprised that Pinterest could be used for career. Um, and there are some good job posts actually out there, or you know, blog posts about how to use Pinterest for your job um, or you're building your business. Um, but what's interesting is you don't necessarily, what you want to do, and I think this is the key, is have a strategy. Yeah. You, know, you don't need to be all things to all people and be on all social media sites. However, the more you can be on, the better, because it does increase your chances of being found. But the strategy can be one of priorities. And if you're going to be anywhere, you need to be on LinkedIn because when you Google your own name, what you'll often find is your LinkedIn page will be one of the first things that comes up, if not the first thing. Hmm. So you want to make sure that page is up to date and really puts out the kind of you know, professional face that you want. Facebook is probably second just because of sheer numbers. Um, obviously, I'm a fan of Twitter from a networking standpoint, uh, but from a present standpoint, make sure you're on LinkedIn. That's really key. Um, and actually, I'm excited because I, I have a, a great colleague who wrote a book called Social Networking for Career Success. And she talks about all the tools, and LinkedIn in particular, and guest blogged on my site with some great tips for how to use it. And we will check it out. Whether you're soul searching, researching, or job searching, how can you bridge the gap between where you are today and your ideal Please check out MaggieMistel.com. You will learn so much. I read the blog, Maggie. Lana does too, I know. And we, we love it. And congratulations mm -hmm. to you on all of the extraordinary help that you have offered so many to better their lives one day at a time. It's MaggieMistel.com, M-A-G-G-I-E-M-I-S-T-A-L. We're proud to call her our resident career coach here on Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen because food and wine and life and career, they all come together. And so much information is given out by Maggie on her blog. Yes, that it is. And um, so we look forward to having you again, Maggie, and we thank you for being our career coach. Oh, my pleasure, ladies. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you. We love sharing our table with extraordinary guests and with you every Sunday morning. I like to say that this is your culinary playground. Please do join me next Sunday, April 22nd at USC at the LA Times Festival of Books in the afternoon at the KFWB booth. Also, please mark your calendar for Sunday, May 6th at Bristol Farms in Manhattan Beach. You can come, taste, and learn and have breakfast with us. Join us for our live radio broadcast.
podcast, store tours, uh, cooking demos, grilling tips, and more will mm-hmm. be shared along with the Melissa's Produce crew. We'll be there all morning long, and we hope you'll bring your family, your friends, your kids out to celebrate spring with us. Mm, come have breakfast with us. A great grilling afterwards as well. And great guests during the show. Yeah, definitely so. In fact, Phil Lempert of uh, the Today Show will mm-hmm. be joining us live and in person. He's a SoCal resident. And a marvelous friend of ours, a great chef from Australia. Yes, Michael Moore will be in town. So we've got the supermarket guru, the greatest uh, Australian chef. Uh, Pixie Tangerines. We yes. are talking up Pixie For all tangerines. my friends. Yes. And we have a food photo contest going on we don't want you to miss as well, where you submit your favorite memorable food photo from your lab travels all you do is attach it to an email and you send it to live at chefjamie.com l-i-v-e at chefjamie.com you might be one of the top three finalists that take home a 50 dollars bristol farms gift card submit your photo now we'd love to see it make sure you tune in next sunday as well when we're having a whole hour of everything gluten-free if you eat gluten-free if you're challenged by celiac disease if you find it helps you lose weight or feel better try Trust us, you want to hear conversation from pastry chef Waylon Lucas of Phonuts. And you know her from the Food Network as she was the Cupcake Wars star. Doran Peterson is joining us live along with chef Tim Cast. We're eating lean and clean next Sunday. He's with Seasons 52 as the executive chef. And he makes dishes that come alive with flavor with no butter. It's truly amazing. You can brown butter, by the way, at chefjamie.com. You can find recipes galore, cook with Lana and more. So please check it out. And thank you for listening. Don't forget that incredible bone-in ribeye special now through Tuesday at Bristol Farms, a location near you at bristolfarms.com. And always delicious to eat and drink with you this morning, Lana. It was great fun. It was great fun. We're going to go on and cook throughout the day. We hope you will too. Until next weekend, I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. Again, I thank you for listening, and I hope you continue to eat well.